Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Hort Week Podcast. Today I'm with landscape architect Tom Liddell, trustee of Brogdale Collections, and I'm Matthew Appleby, editor of Hort Week. So welcome, Tom. Thanks very much, Matt. It's great to be here. Now, Tom, there's lots going on with the Brogdale Collections, so can you tell me what's happening and what the Brogdale Collections are? Ah, well, Brogdale Collections is the charity, completely independent, completely self-funded, which gives access to the National Fruit Collection at Brogdale near Faversham in Kent. And the National Fruit Collection is important because it's a national collection, but it's also of international importance under the Food and Agriculture Organisation, which is called part of the UN, uh, wonderfully named Treaty for the Conservation of Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, aka the Plant Treaty. And um, so it's got 4,000 varieties, cultivars, shall we say, of um, apples, pears, plum, cherries, and a few um, uh, quince, medlars, and, and it's, got, it's got some um, suitable varieties of grapes, which for winemaking in Britain, and that sort of thing as well. And so we, we think it's the only one in the world of all the international ones, which includes, you know, potatoes and rice and all sort of, you know, cocoa, vegetable crops and everything else. We think it's the only one which is actually open to the public, probably because it's the only fruiting collection, even of the fruit ones. Um, for historical reasons. And so we've actually got the attraction of actual fruit for people to see when they come. Difficult to see how you could regularly open a collection of wheat or something like that, really. So it's a very valuable collection, and you look after it, but at the moment, there's things happening. So what is happening? It is. Just to say, it's looked after on behalf of DEFRA by University of Reading, who are the curators. So we just do the public access and we're developing education programmes, etc., etc., around it. Because with the diversity of fruit and all the things about diet and all those things which are being talked about and sustainable and, you know, how much balance between plants and, and meat that people can eat and all that sort of thing, there's a huge agenda that we can develop the, edu the educational side. But in terms of what's happening now is that the 
farm, the whole farm is 150 acres, 60 hectares up for sale, of which a third is the National Fruit Collection. And it's up for sale. Um, DEFRA's got a secure lease on it. We've got a lease on it as well, on, on part of it. But it's up for sale because the owners have decided to sell. And it's now on the market. Okay. Um, so what does that mean, if it, depending on who buys it? What does it mean with... What does that mean for the collection? Well, DEFRA's got a secure lease on it. It's a long lease. I'm not sure how much is left. I've forgotten now, probably 25 years or something like 20. Um, but the collection should be secure. Now, particularly it's got international status with the um, FAO. Um, and so that's, I'll say it's only about a third of it, and there is the, the balance of the farm as well. So it's, it puts us, of course, now in, we've got to, you know, hope we get on with the new landlords. No, well, that's good news. And you've got plans for developing the site, haven't you, for, for some planning permissions that are in? Yes, we have had for a long time. And if I got involved in 1989 when the whole collections and everything was threatened and the farm was going to be sold. And, of course, Prince Charles got in and enabled the purchase of the farm and all that sort of stuff. But then it moved on from that. And eventually um, I actually found the, the current buyers when it was up for sale. And that, that was by far the best offer which was there. So they bought it, the developer I knew. And um, so they're now, you know, age like me of course well, I better move on so they've decided to sell and uh, that's the situation now and it's on a website at the moment so you can see all the details oh, yeah. so you're hoping to build new attractions there in the future yeah we had I developed plans in in fact even as much as the mid 90s that we should try and show off um, sort of 10% of the collection in gardens which would actually put them in their historic context of you know gardens of whatever period you might like of course let's take a, a shiny example of course of a little mini bit of Versailles for instance of course which was you know showing off everything um, to other gardens more recent gone Victorian kitchen gardens and all those things and we could actually show some of the historic cultivars in their actual context much like a museum actually where 90% of their um, accessions, of course, are in storage. No, no, indeed, because we were in touch quite recently about Peter Thoday talking of Victoria Kitchen Gardens, who yep. I wrote the obituary for for the Guardian, and uh, I guess that is, uh, you know, that piece of history is is much loved by by Britons. It is, and I think that it, when it's a historic position, of course, the, the the big hitters in in heritage and landscape and gardens, of course, are the National Trust and the English Heritage, and we've got a slightly. Well, it's a bit rather complex situation. Of course, we're never great with it, getting the message out what you're about. But it's a very complex situation of what, what we're offering, what our position is. We don't get any outside funding, and although we have some generous charities which help us. But um, otherwise, no other uh, sort of official funding at all. So we've developed these ideas, which we haven't really started to implement. You've got to hit a certain level where you can afford, as you know, of course, in anything to do with public horticulture of any kind, you've got to be able to afford the management and the maintenance. So you've got to hit a certain threshold. And of course, um, some of the most skilled horticulture there is, of course, is the management of fruit trees. No, indeed. Now let's go back to the beginning because you um, obviously been a landscape architect for many, many years, but you're from quite an artistic background, aren't you, Tom? You've got ah. a well-known name in the art world. Oh dear, right. <laughs> Thank you for that, Matt. <laughs> yes. Yeah, indeed, I was actually brought up in a um, post-war environment in central London, 
of um, artists uh, who were, needless to say, in the sort of world of post-war, idealistic art. Um, you know, I remember the Inter Artists International Association, that sort of thing like that. And um, my father was a printmaker, primarily a printmaker, and taught at the Royal College of Art. Um, but that was all a bit too much, really. My mother ended up painting portraits. And so I thought, hmm. <laughs> so my version of a 1960s rebellion was to go the other way, go from art into actually I took a pure science degree. Ah. And where did it go from there? Because you didn't um, become the uh, the botanist or the biologist you might have been. I didn't, no. I think... I really, it was, it was a wonderful experience to go on a really high-powered sort of genetics, um, plant breeding focus with all the other things of ecology and you know, taxonomy and all that sort of thing there in the department as well. But um, it was, it, it was, I think, it, in the end, I, was, I wanted to do plant breeding, that's why I did it. And I sort of had a possibility of going to um, Botanic Garden in Jamaica to breed citrus fruits. But then I thought, towards the end of the third year, I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I'd be a very good scientist. And um, perhaps, you know, uh, he would find something. Else. Then up came this thing, this is called landscape architecture, or landscape design, as it was so often called then. So I did a um, postgraduate in that. And then not long afterwards, I began to combine ecology and landscape architecture. So you didn't go to Jamaica, you went to Manchester instead. I went to Manchester, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I swapped tropical rainstorms for Manchester's drizzle. Excellent, excellent. But you're quite a pioneer in, in ecology and landscape architecture. Would you, would you say that's the, a, a fair description? Well, yeah, I mean, I sort of expressed opinions about these things. I'm actually rather sad that, because very quickly I was in a position where I was able to combine ecology and landscape architecture. And so the idea of ecology and design to me, is probably the fundamental to what I've done ever since I've worked as a landscape architect. Because the whole... If you think about pure design, you know, you can think of very purest design in very small spaces and it does all sorts of fun things and engages people and all that. But if once you then get into a wider, um, wider world, wider landscape, you need to think about ecology as well. Because particularly now, I mean, it's, we're now in sort of... Well, really the sort of disaster zone of biodiversity and well, possibly even of human survival, of course, if it's not, that's not repaired very quickly. You know, biodiversity is not just about, oh, isn't it nice that we're saving that butterfly or in terms of botany, we're saving that rare plant or, you know, reintroducing them or whatever. It's much more about if, if that system isn't there, it's exactly the same for in the wild. It's growing crops, of course, you know, as you know, any kind of crop, you know, whether it's... Um, ornamentals or, or whether it's it's food whatever it is the same systems you know it's just growing plants what do you feel have been the most important projects you've worked on over the years Ooh, i don't know probably i worked for Kane county council between 74 and 84 and I was really lucky to be they're two very large land holdings and they put together a sort of mini team, really, um, a very mini team compared to the uh, the new towns, which, are, you know, Milton Keynes was quite new then and all that. And um, one or two others were doing, Hampshire was doing something similar as well. And on that team, and I was very lucky because um, there was a, a very sort of entrepreneurial, open-minded 
um, surveyor who ran the team, a very, very small team, and an architect planner who'd actually studied with Ian McHarg in Pennsylvania, of course, which was wonderful because we instantly spoke the same language. You know, Design with Nature had been published in 64, I think it was 65. And so um, we were in, one of the developments was in about 350 acres of what was essentially woodland. It probably wouldn't be considered for development. So I thought, okay, let's make the urban fringe of, of Chatham. And so we sort of said, Okay, let's um, create the whole thing as though it's, it's development. It's perfectly ordinary housing development, but within woodland, um, and that the open spaces, lots of chalk dry valleys, which will be there, will just be you know managed. That's it. It's an urban park, but it doesn't look like one, and it's pretty much like that now. Awful lot of trees there. So I sort of rather pioneered keeping trees in development by producing plans in the brief for each area that was done and said, oh, keep these trees, these are the good ones and that sort of thing. So an awful lot of it's like that and planned around existing trees with these larger areas of woodland and on the steep uh, valley sides of the chalk valleys, etc. Um, there, so that was one. And the other one at the same time was completely different in Ashford, which was then and still is an expanding town, which was um, arable land mainly with the River Star, which runs through Ashford, in one corner of it. So, um, you know, it was wonderful to have that huge contrast. And because the approach we took started to create much, much higher land values within a couple of years, uh, everybody left us alone, of course, as long as it was making money instead of being, you know, costing the county council a lot of money, and we were just left alone. So that was a, <laughs> it's the biggest impact. I mean, it's just quite nice when you could look on Google Earth and say, goodness me, that's all on Google Earth, you know. Sounds great. It sounds ahead of its time, certainly. But looking at looking where we are now, what do you think of the landscape architect profession at the moment and how it's represented sort of nationally and internationally? Hmm. It's kind of a leading question, that, isn't it, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> As you know, <laughs> lots of things going on with the Landscape Institute. I don't really know. I haven't really looked at the press and to see how much, how much of it's been actually out there. Um, but it's caused a lot of controversy within the profession. Well, I'm not sure you can call it a lot of controversy, but it's all been going on. It's all very sort of administrative. But it's rather sad, really, because I think the real issues for the Landscape Institute, which after all includes designers, managers and uh, ecologists and landscape scientists, is how is it going to... What are, its, what are its members going to be doing in the wider world, and it includes those things that we were talking about, like biodiversity and all of those things, of course. But this not as jargon, but it's completely integrated into the design process. Because it's not that complicated, really, to understand it as a, as a design feature, what you do with it. But as far as I can see, it's sort of talked about, but it doesn't really seem to be, well, from the scant knowledge I have of courses now, but it doesn't really seem to be integrated. You know, the funny thing is, I just reminisced in 1986, and I remember the date, there was a landscape, Future of Landscape Education conference in, um, I think it might, have been, it might have been Sheffield, I can't remember now, maybe Birmingham. And I chaired a group on ecology and design and made specific recommendations, which would be at least one major project in a landscape architecture course, which integrated ecology and design and used the idea of, uh, you know, habitats, etc., etc., integrated into things at all scales. And I don't really believe that ever really happened. I think even at Sheffield, really, um, again, from, you know, not deep knowledge of it, 
but it's it's there should be a complete integration of ecology and design uh, for most projects. I mean, after all, you've got biodiversity net gain now as part of the planning process. Um, it's a it is an absolute box ticking exercise with lots of calculations on it. But does it actually mean anything? Um, for what I've seen of it and what I've done with earlier things and, and all that, um, it may not, you know, rather like, um, um, you know, all these um, carbon schemes and carbon all these kind of things, credits you can get and all that sort of thing, which are now being exposed for, you know, actually, yeah, there's always a way around them, you know, so they'll, they'll mean something, but do they actually mean anything what they're supposed to mean? And I have a fear that biodiversity net gain is going to be like that. It's a big process. It's lots of um, you know numbers crunching and all that kind of thing, measuring areas. But what does it actually mean? And that's really a much simpler process than than all of that. You can use a lot of common sense if you really understand the basis of design and ecology. Yeah, okay. No, that's, that's 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 interesting to hear. Now, how do you feel that landscape architects should be or would like to be represented at the moment? Like, what 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 do they want to be heard to be saying? Do you think? Hmm. Well, you know, it's a, it's become, since I first started working in 1969 in the London Borough of Lambeth, which I must say was great fun, uh, led by John Medhurst, another, um, you know, uh, you know, who writes, by the way, a very entertaining uh, Tales of a Tree Spotter in the Arboricultural magazine, um, with extraordinary breadth of references and about a particular tree. Um, and he was leading it then, and so that was great. And he was originally a horticulturist at Kew. And um, it's sort of, it's, it's moved on in a very strange way in the sense of it's become obviously huge numbers of landscape architects. It's become entrenched in the planning system, in lots of aspects of guidance and all that sort of thing. So whereas we were sort of, when I went out on my own in 1984, you had a quite a job to make your voice heard on a, multidisciplinary team of, for a developer or whatever um, it now is rather different to that and you know I've done a few schemes doing just a little bit of work now but um, particularly when um, my previous year was much younger part, uh, partner in the practice left and went out on her own um, we were doing some quite significant landscape led schemes which is now the sort of what they should be really into quite sensitive situations and uh, one of them I'm still doing a bit of work on, and she's doing quite a lot of work on. And uh, that, that's the way it's really changed, I think, is it's got into the system. But the question is, is it contributing now with, you know, totally integrated into a professional system, administrative system, box-ticking system? Is it really delivering what it should be? And I've just been reading the latest edition of Landscape, the Landscape Institute magazine on the train coming up, and um, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, that's uh, that is the big question indeed. Now, um, what are you working on at the moment and in the future? What what plans have you got professionally? Well, um, one or two bits of tailoring. That's got quite difficult, really, funnily enough, to when somebody calls up and says, "Ah, oh, what about this? I've got phase two or something." To say no, your sort of instinct is still to say yes. Oh, it's another site to go to, you know, to look at, and what are the challenges? But the most interesting one is a marina 
in Strood in Kent, which is across the river from Rochester. And it's about a kilometre of uh, riverside. And um, it's a really interesting client who just bought it as a derelict place sort of over 25 years ago, mud flats and rotting wooden wharfs and all that thing. And he's turning it into a sort of, not just a sort of flashy marina, but with boat yards and dry docks and all that sort of thing there. So it's rather fun to be involved with people who just enthusiasm and want to get going. And of course, lots of landscape issues, the area of outstanding attributes each side of the River Medway there. And um, yes, and <laughs> we also came across many years ago, one of the projects there, Tentacle Lagoon Worm in Saline Lagoons, which unfortunately I got to know a lot more about than I would have really wanted to. Really, what happened there? <laughs> it's only maximum five, mil five millimetres long. Right. Okay. But it's an indicator species anyway. So, uh -huh. so again, but it's, again, it's manipulating, um, you know, the environment. I mean, so much of habitat creation, of course, is about um, getting the ground conditions right. Mm. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground, Tom, but uh, we always finish up with the podcast by asking the age-old question, what is your favourite plant? This hopefully you've had a bit of time to think about this. So, what do you reckon? Hmm. Well, I think can I can I choose two because yeah. it's really got to be, hasn't it? Particularly in Britain, it's got to be native or introduced plants. And we've got an absolutely abysmal native flora of only about twelve hundred species, and we've also got the most degraded landscape in Europe as well which people look out it's all lovely and green but actually for wildlife and biodiversity it's terrible but that's for habitat reasons and connectivity etc so i suppose i have to choose oaks really or the oak because not only is it such a symbolic tree but it's also of course has the most insects eating it which means that the most other animals eat the insects so it's, it's the beginning of a great food chain as for introduced plants, I mean, I sort of enjoy myself with, with diversity of um, introduced plants. So it's really difficult to choose one. Um, you know, I'm a sort of fairly uh, chaotic gardener with all sorts of different things in it. And, you know, one or two friends who are sort of even one has been a plant collector and all that sort of thing. So it's really difficult to, to choose a particular plant. But I suppose the one which has, a bit like the National Fruit Collection, has huge diversity in it, and a rather interesting sort of um, genetic origin, etc. It's just generally is the sort of roses and the origin of roses, diversity of roses and the heritage of roses and that sort of thing. That is fun. Not really a very good choice. If you've got many of them in the garden, of course, they're so prone to pests and diseases, but you have to put up with that, really. And when I, can I pick a particular one? I'm not sure that I can, really. Um, yes, I haven't got time to think anymore, have I? I think oak and roses are great choices. So, you know, like and lots of lovely native species of roses. Well, exactly. And, proper, proper... and of course, rosaceae, where a lot of them are apomictic, of course, which makes it really complicated. Well, rambles, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know that's two two British choices. That's very good. I didn't say much about Brogdale. Well, tell, tell me a bit more about Brockdale. Tell me, tell me a bit more about, uh, yeah, because that's where we're here, really. Yeah, can I just say one more thing about it, then? Is that the important thing for us at the moment, for the charity, is that um, we, I, I got decided, I said to trustees, look, we've got to get, um, we've got to push ahead, and we've got to get planning permission now, because that's always the first requirement for a visitor information and learning centre. And so 
it, I said, okay, I'll do the lot. So I knew a really nice, good architect who's, you know, quite new with his own practice and that thing. So we worked out a really good proposal just for an outline application. And it's not a huge building, um, but, you know, rather fun. And we've got a, a glass house um, manufacturer to get involved so that we could have a bit of it glazed and that sort of thing with proper climate controls and all that sort of thing in it. And so that's got outline planning permission. We're just about to get the, all the details discharged. So we need to raise money for the Visitor Information and Learning Centre for Brockdale. And that's really important because at the moment we're just in a corner of the old ministry building. And it was called the National Fruit Trials, set up in 1952 to encourage fruit growing in Britain. So it was a sort of very minor research centre, a lot of them. But that's how the National Fruit Collection came to be there, because it was developed as an identification collection and that's why it's a fruiting collection. And DEFRA has said, OK, we'll plant it wide enough spaces that there'll still be fruit available for the public. So the next stage is that. We've got to recover from COVID. And now we've got to raise funds for the Visitor Information and Learning Centre. OK, well, that's that's a good call, call to arms to raise funds and to keep Brogdale going, which I'm sure it will successfully for many years to come. And uh, it's been great talking to Tom Liddell, landscape architect, and um, from the Brogdale Collections, and I'm Matthew Appleby, Hawk Week editor. And this has been the Hawk Week podcast, so make sure you never miss a Hawk Week podcast. Subscribe to or follow Hawk Week podcasts via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. But once again, thanks to Tom Liddell, and goodbye until next time. <laughs>